it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Tonight we have episode 228, and we're going to answer three great listener questions we got recently. These are wide ranging, and so this is going to cover a little bit of different territory. So this will be a fun conversation. So without any further ado, uh, we'll go ahead and read our first question. So I have, hey, Andrew and Dave, I've listened to all your podcasts over the years and came up with a question of curious how would you respond to? On a previous episode, when talking about Employee Stock Purchase Plans, ESPP, the general sentiment was something along the lines of, that's a free 5, 10, or 15% return on your money, I'd probably cash out immediately. Why subject yourself to potential market swings when you have a guarantee? However, I work for a company that was recommended in Andrew's monthly e-letter, and those companies are held by you slash others as they are seen as great future investments. What would you do if you were able to get an ESPP discount on a company you also saw as a great future investment? Thanks, Nick. So, Andrew, what are your thoughts on Nick's great question? So let's break down real quick ESPP, what that means. It stands for Employee Stock Purchase Plan, and it gives you the opportunity, most ESPP plans give you the opportunity to buy the stock in the company you work for at a discount. So like you said in the question, you could get free 5 10 or 15% on your money. Basically, you tell your company, hey, I want to buy you know $2,000 worth of stock. Usually they have some program where you can buy 2000 worth, but you're getting a little bit less than what the price actually is in the market. So you, a lot of times with those programs, you can turn around and sell it immediately after you buy it. And you can pick up that free discount that they offer on the stock, whatever that is. So the reason why we say I'd probably just cash out immediately is not only do you want to reduce volatility, you also 
don't want to put all of your eggs in one basket. So you don't want to lose your job, which is your source of income and lose your savings at the same time. If the company goes bankrupt, that's probably the biggest reason to not keep as much money from a stocks perspective in the company you work for. Because if that, if things go south, you get hit in a double whammy kind of thing. In this situation, I would look at it like I would look at any other stock if it were me. So I would look at how much of this company's stock makes up my portfolio and how much do I want it to make up. And so if I can add more to that position and not feel like it's too much of my position, then I will do that. And if not, then just sell it and put it somewhere else. Yeah, that's great advice. And I worked for a company that offered stock options, but they didn't offer an ESPP plan. So it was, I bought it for whatever the value of the company was in the market at the time. And that was also how the company compensated me when they would give us our quarterly match for being involved in the company's 401k. And over a period of time, that position grew to be a bigger portion of my portfolio, which in hindsight was not the greatest idea because what ended up happening is it ended up growing to be almost 40% of my 401k at one point because it was such a big position and it just kept growing and growing. And then you know what happened? The stock dropped like a rock and it went from around $55 a share to around 21 bucks a share. And my 401k's value plummeted because I had so much of my worth tied up in the company that I work for. And I'm not saying that I shouldn't have all that money tied up in that, but in hindsight, I should have rotated some of that money out of that into something else. And so as I built another portfolio, I have never added to that company since because why would I? You know, I had so much of that company in my portfolio already. Even though the stock had dropped so much, I still was already in it. So it just didn't make sense. But I would agree with what Andrew was saying because you get a big discount on it, which is awesome. And maybe that's a great way to start a position or a portfolio, having that as your anchor. But if it grows to be 30 or 40% of your net worth, and then all of a sudden the stock does take a fall, like right now, what's going on in the market. And if you had a company that fell 30 or 40%, that would suck. Or put it another way, let's say you're close to retirement and 30 or 40% of your net worth was tied up in that particular company and it dropped half of its value six months before you wanted to retire. That would not be a good position to be in. So there are times and places for contributing to these kinds of plans. And it's definitely something that as an overall part of your strategy is definitely something you should take advantage of when you can, but you have to kind of keep it in consideration. You don't want to have all your eggs in one basket, no matter how much you believe in a company, because depending on what's going in a market can impact your returns. And it also puts a lot of risk in being involved in that company. And you also don't always know how the company is going to perform. You know, let's say you leave 10 years from now and you kind of forget that you have all that money there. And that could be a bit of a bummer too. So, you know, there's other things to consider, but if it's something that you want to start a position with, I think it's a great idea. My pet peeve these days and part of it, annoys me because I made the same mistake when I first started is putting too much money into a single company and thinking that you're doing good investing by doing that. And by putting a lot of money into a single company, I'm talking about, I don't know, 20% is like debatable. But once you get above that 25, 30%, 40%, 
that's where you really start to go away from what I believe is good investing and more towards the speculative side. I understand people say that Warren Buffett put 40% of his investment into Coca-Cola or into Apple, but newsflash, you're not Warren Buffett, okay? None of us Warren Buffett, Warren Buffett was investing for over 20 years before he put 40% of his money into Coca-Cola. He had a lot of experience. He also, when he put 40% into Apple, he had that whole other side of Berkshire Hathaway that's not the stock portfolio. You know, like he bought real companies like Geico, the insurance, the uh, Gen Re, right? It wasn't 40% of the whole company that they were putting into Apple. It was 40% of his stock portfolio, which only made up half of what his overall company was worth, right? Mm -hmm. So, and I say it because I made the mistake in the past. Like I put, I had 15% in one company. I think I had 15% in like Sanderson Farms. I had somewhere close to 15 or 20% in Franklin Resources, And those have been two disastrous picks for me in the past that has taken a long time to recover from. And it's very humbling when you finally have to go through it. It projects such a sense of certainty that you think that there's no way you could be wrong on a company that you're willing to bet the house on it will set you up for a big humbling down the future. And the way you mitigate that as an investor is you spread it out. So if I'm spread out over, let's say, 20 positions, and they're each making up only like 5%, one of those I could think I'm right on. But if I end up being wrong, it doesn't kill me. But if you are adamant that you're right on a 25% position and you are wrong, you're going to be playing catch up for a long time, if not for decades. So you do have to be very careful that not only, you know, it's easy to kind of like push that kind of simple advice aside and think, oh, well, I'm smarter than that, or this company is just that much more special. But there is a lot of hubris in that, and you have to be careful. You absolutely do. And you have to look no further than what happened to Netflix yesterday. It dropped 35% in one day. And Andrew and I were talking about that off air before recording tonight. I don't know that I've ever seen a company that size lose that much in that short of amount of time. It's kind of staggering. And I would imagine that, you know, everybody prior to what happened yesterday thought that Netflix was kind of a no doubter. And for me, anyway, I can't speak for the rest of the market, obviously, but it kind of shocked me a little bit to see a company like that go through what it went through yesterday and probably will continue to struggle here for the next little bit until they can prove that they can grow revenues and subscriber counts again. Until then, people are probably going to put it on the big doubt bus. And so anyway, if you work for a company like that and you think that it's super, super strong and nothing like that could ever happen, just try to remember that what happened in Netflix and, and you know, I'm not bashing people that are investing in, in Netflix. You know, I feel bad for the people that were involved with that because that's not a fun place to be. And I feel for them, but we could take a learning experience from that. And like Andrew said about Warren Buffett, we're not Warren Buffett. None of us are. <laughs> and the knowledge and the experience that that man has is legendary, not only that, but just his brain. So he thinks differently than we do. And so I think sometimes we have to, like Andrew said, the hubris, and we have to remind ourselves that we are not that and that we just need to be conscious of what our strengths and our weaknesses are and try to work with those because those will help you much more in the long run than investing all of your net worth in the company that you work for. And I'm not saying you shouldn't invest in the company that you work for. You absolutely should. But unless you're the founder, 
you have a choice of where you want to spread out your wealth. And I think that's a great way to invest is by kind of spreading your bets around. Yeah, well said. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to Nerd Wallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before Nerd Wallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. All right, so... Now that we beat that pony to death, let's uh, let's take another crack at another one here. Uh, hi, Andrew. Thank you for your radio show. I enjoy it. I have a question about researching dividend stocks. I subscribe to your newsletter, and that makes it a good place to start for investing. CI popped up in an article, which is Cigna, by the way, in an article from 2019 that popped up when I researched model investment portfolios. When I looked further into it, the jump in dividend was staggering. What research do I need to do next to avoid a dividend trap? Thank you. Sincerely, Katie. So, Andrew, the drip king, what are your thoughts on (laughs) what do we need to do to avoid a dividend trap? I think the first step and the easiest step is to look at the payout ratio. So basically what we're doing is we're looking at how much does the company make in profit and then how much of that are they paying in a dividend? So I think we can obviously say you don't want a company paying out more than they actually earned. They might be, maybe do that once or twice, but even then, that's kind of, you're starting to get into danger zone a little bit. So you want to look at that proportion, you know, make that comparison. So that's called the dividend payout ratio. So you can take 
So I like using quickfs.net, quickfs.net. Just <laughs> double emphasize. So if, double. if you if I talk too fast, you could remember it for later. They have at the very front page of any company you look at, go down to the bottom and you'll see a earnings per share row and you'll see a dividends per share row. And they have those should be close to each other and you can compare how many dividends are paid out versus how much earnings they have. So in the case of Cigna, just looking at the dividend payout ratio, their most recent dividend was $4. Their earnings per share was 15 almost $16. So you're looking at about a 25% payout ratio. They paid about a quarter of their earnings that year in a dividend. So I think anything below 75 is generally safe. I prefer to kind of go to the ones below 50 because those are kind of leaving more earnings to be reinvested later or do stock buybacks or make acquisitions. So the lower is better. And that would be the first place to look would be the dividend payout ratio. Is there anything to do with maybe what industry the companies might be in or maybe how mature the companies could be? Would that have an impact on the dividend payout ratio? Yeah, sure. So I guess more matured industries will tend to have higher dividend payout ratios because they don't have as much of potential for future growth. So you actually, if that's the case in the company you're looking at, you do want to see that because you don't want management just spending $15 billion on some fantasy they have. You would rather see some of that money actually either turn a profit, turn into growth, or just give it back to who it belongs to, which would be the shareholders. In the case of industries, we've talked about REITs in the past. We had a great interview with Christopher Volk, co-founder of a public REIT, several REITs actually. And so they are required by law to have a specific amount of payout ratio over time. Outside of that, yeah, I mean... Industries are funny because everybody just copies everybody else. So you might see other companies doing payout ratios just because that's what their peers over there are doing. But in general, yeah, higher payout ratio for slower growing stocks. That's what you'll tend to see. Yeah, that's good information. So when we were talking about looking at this question, the answer for Katie. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. I did a little bit of quick research on Cigna because I was kind of curious why she was asking this question. So several things that kind of popped out that may help you when you're kind of trying to do some research to maybe understand what's driving something like this. So for example, Cigna went from paying $0.04 a share in dividends annually to $4 a share from so $0.04 to $4. So that's a pretty big jump. I think, what is it, a thousand percent or something like that? So <laughs> that's kind of a big... that. And so when you see something like that, that would make your eyes kind of bug out like, whoa, what was that? So the first thing that really I looked at was I wanted to look at the revenue of the company. So I, I saw the payout ratio like Andrew was talking about, I could see that compared to the earnings, it was you know relatively low. So then I looked up at the top of the income statement where the revenue are, and you can see that the company has been growing revenues fairly steadily over the last five or six years. But there was something that jumped out at me. And back in 2019, one of their line items on their revenue jumped quite a bit from around four or 5 billion to about a hundred billion. So the 
that was like, oh, what happened here? So obviously they made an acquisition because you don't create something out of air and that kind of industry that all of a sudden, you know, increases your revenue by $96 billion. That's a big chunk of change. So Andrew did a little quick uh, Google search and it turned out that they had bought Express Scripts, which was one of the larger pharmacy companies. So, and Cigna actually was attempted to be bought out by Aetna in 2015, but it was rejected because of regulatory concerns. So the company has been going through some you know, mergers and acquisition activity trying to get bigger. Anyway, so that acquisition led me to ask two other questions. How did they finance that? And so then I looked at the balance sheet and I could see that they grew debt by a lot. So from about $4.1 billion to $39 billion, So that's a big jump. And then their goodwill, which is another line item under the asset section, also jumped roughly around the same amount. So I could see that the company took on debt and they added some goodwill to the balance sheet, which increased their debt and their liabilities and their assets on the balance sheet. And that's how they funded buying Express Scripts. And then the last kind of I guess quick analysis is I looked at their cash flow statement and I could see over the last three or four years that they've been growing cash flow for the business and they've also been paying down the debt and they've been increasing the dividend as well as paying increasing share buybacks. So they're generating a pretty good amount of cash flow and they're using that to give back to investors like Katie if she bought Cigna to in both a form of a dividend, which they greatly increased. And they also are doing a lot of share buybacks. And also, so my last little, I guess, tour of kind of doing a quick analysis of the company is I looked at their latest earnings quarterly call and I did a control F for dividends. And I could see that the company was talking about raising their dividend next year, 12%. That's their target. And so that is, it's obviously, this is part of their plan now is to start paying a pretty good dividend, a healthy dividend for investors. And that's one way that they'll help hopefully be able to attract more shareholders as they go along. And it's obviously part of management's plan as a way to give back to those shareholders that have invested with the company. So those are are, I guess, some quick, easy ways to kind of look through the financials without having to dive into every nitty gritty word of the the 10K or the 10Q to kind of give you an, an idea of, you know, hey, what's going on here? Where did this dividend came from? So, for example, let's say that the company did not do this acquisition and they just took on a whole bunch of debt and now they're paying out a dividend and they're not paying that debt down. That would not be a good thing. That's not something you would want to see because now the company is taking on, it's kind of like borrowing $10,000 to start having a whole bunch of parties with your friends at home. Why, why would you do that? And I'm sure there's reasons, but if fiscally, that's maybe not the wisest decision to make. And so although the party would probably be epic, it may not be the wisest financial decision. So when you see companies do that, those are not companies you want to invest in. That's not management you want to put your money behind because they're not doing things that are in the best interest for you as well as the business. So these are all just little things that you can look at as you go along. You'll learn these little tricks to help you kind of do some quick analysis to figure out if this is something that could be in line with what you want to see or maybe not so much. So I hope that helps answer your question, Katie. If you're listening to Investing for Beginners, then you probably care about money and learning how to make a good relationship with your finances. Everyone's Talking Money is hosted by money wellness expert and certified financial planner, Shauna Game. 
Everyone's Talking Money focuses on relevant, inclusive, and forward-thinking conversations around money. Hear about the money topics you need to know, such as ways to train your brain to reach money goals, why you should ditch your budget and start tracking your cash, and everything you need to know about paying off student loans. Simple steps to start investing as a side hustle, ways to invest in rental real estate, how to overcome money trauma, and so much more. With over 900 episodes, there's a show for any and every money question you have. I'm a big fan of Shauna's as well. She has a relatable style and soothing voice that takes some of the stress surrounding money. Shauna really speaks to the listener and never ends in an episode without actionable tips. I recently listened to the episode, Stop Stressing Over Your Money, a simple budgeting solution, where she talks about her simple, easy one, two, three system for budgeting. It helped me a lot. Are you ready to learn everything about money that no one has taught you? Do yourself a favor and subscribe to Everyone's Talking Money podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. That was a great tour. I think a lot of listeners appreciated that. (laughs) Thanks. So let's move on to the last question for tonight. Hi, Dave and Andrew. Thanks for the wonderful content. I have been a listener of the podcast for quite some time now, and I've truly found your work beneficial for my financial well-being. That's awesome. Given the 10 to 12-year bull market and dominant tech stock market that we are in, I wanted to explore alternatives to hedge against a bear market and came across ticker TECS. While it is a leveraged fund and is inherently more volatile, I wanted to gather your thoughts on if this is a strong hedge investment, considering its extremely low price, lending way to minimal downside with large upside potential. Thank you again. Okay, so let's talk about this interesting question. So the ticker TECS. So what is that? So this is a fund that is run by, I'm probably going to butcher this, Direxian. Is that how you think you would say that? Uh, or Sounds direction, good to me. Or direction. I, um, it's spelled D-I-R-E-X-I-O-N. And it's a daily technology ETF. And they have a bear and they have a bull. And it's a three-time share. So basically what it is, is this fund is attempting to meet a 300 positive or a 300% negative return daily. And they do that by leveraging the fund to using derivatives and future options to generate returns for the fund. So basically, the group of stocks that they are trying to track, they're just trying to match what those group of stocks do. So if that group of stocks goes up $2, they're going to leverage it three times because it's a 3x. So they're going to try to make the fund go up 6 if the group of stocks went down $2, they're going to try to make the fund go down negative six. So it's not like they're making bets necessarily. They're just trying to follow a group of stocks up or down and just trading options and all of those fancy exotic instruments to make those returns match. Is that fair explanation? Yeah, that's a way better than I was doing. <laughs> way better. So I looked up, I went to their website and I see the top 10 holdings of the fund. And here's the listing. It's Apple, Microsoft, NVIDIA, Visa, MasterCard, Broadcom, Cisco, Adobe, Accenture, and Salesforce. And that makes up around 60% of the fund with Apple and Microsoft controlling about 45% of the fund. So it's obviously heavy and it's very heavy with Apple and Microsoft. And so by and large, I mean, those are all companies, you know, it wouldn't break my heart to own just outright. So I guess I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are on kind of 
the idea behind this and kind of what it's trying to do? I mean, I don't like it because number one, I don't think you want to bet against the economy, at least for the long term, right? And if we can establish that, well, if you're just trying to beat the economy over the short term, now you're getting into market timing. And I, don't, I haven't met anybody who's done that successfully, consistently over a long period of time. Maybe you have a magic eight ball that is very accurate that I don't have. Outside of having one of those, I don't know how you time betting against the economy, unless you're like Michael Burry or somebody like that. Secondly, Microsoft and Apple are two out of the three companies, I think, that have AAA credit ratings, which means they are considered the safest invest, like uh, default risk. Like they are not, they are very unlikely to go bankrupt. And if I look around and I see how much I like my iPhone, how many people around me have iPhones, how many people have Windows computers and all the other great services Microsoft has, that's a tough bet. But, you know, on the flip side, I do see. The idea that it's been a bull market for a while, you feel like tech is expensive. So there is some logic to that part, but you start mixing leverage and then the timing aspect into it. And I think there's a lot of potential issues there. Curious what what you see with that. I kind of agree with the idea of I don't want to bet against the economy. And I don't know that I would necessarily want to bet against... Microsoft and Apple and Visa and MasterCard alone, just those four companies, are fantastic bets on how well the economy is going to do going forward. And I understand the idea of wanting to kind of hedge against what you think might be a potential bear market or coming recession. And those are certainly things that are possible and could easily happen. But it's not something that I necessarily want to bet against. And when I'm investing, I'm really looking at the future and the long-term performance of the company. And so I'm betting when I invest in Visa, which I do, I'm betting that that company is going to be successful over a long period of time, irregardless of what happens over the next six months or two years. I think in 10 years, that company is going to be even better than it is today. And so I don't need to hedge against it because that's or for it, because I think it's going to be a great company. And when you start, for me, when you start putting leverage into the whole equation, that scares me because you can amplify positive and negative. And that, you know, we've talked about this before, but, you know, if it goes down 10%, then it means it has to regain. Okay. Let's say you made 80% on your money. You have $100. You make 80% on your money. That's $80. You have $180. If you had that $100, you lose 80%, you lost $80, you're down to $20. We understand that simple math, right? Yeah. The problem comes in where when you lose money, you're starting back at square beforehand. So it's like mm-hmm. one step forward, two steps back when you lose money. So let's take that 80% again. We lost 80%. We went from 100 to 20. If you made 80% on your 20, the two steps back you took, that's only... Let's say you even tripled your money. You made 200%, not even 80%. If you tripled your money from $20, you're still only at 60. So you still haven't broken even from the 100, from the 80 you lost before. Mm-hmm. And so let's say we went the other way. Let's say we won first and then we lost, right? Maybe we took two steps forward and then we thought we could only take one step back. If you made the 80, you're at 180. And then if you lose 80% of 180, you're down to like 30 bucks. So again, you have to like more than triple your money. And that's a lot more than just 80%. 
So you can see losses hurt way more than gains. And so when you add leverage, all you're doing is magnifying your losses. Yes, you're magnifying your gains, but if you're magnifying your losses and your gains equally, you're going to just, it's not going to make you money over the long term. That's just the sheer numbers of it. And that's, I guess, a pretty decent reason why Buffett's kind of slow and steady wins the race concept has worked so well because he hasn't taken 70, 80% losses, maybe like once or twice in his career. Outside of that, it's been very minimal. So it's a very weird concept and I didn't understand it for a long time. But once I did, I was like, oh, wow. Like we, more people need to talk about this because that's just the simple fact. You take one step forward, four steps back. When you talk about investing, it's very, very hard to get back from that. So why would you leverage up to experience that yourself? You shouldn't. And if you look at the track record of so many of these leverage ETFs, they're terrible. We actually did talk about that. What is the track record for this particular one? I think it was over the last five years, it was like minus 99%. That's what it said on Google Finance. That's You're never coming back from that outside of hitting the lottery. Right. Yeah. So I think we would probably agree that maybe this is not the best idea. I would probably argue that it would be much better to focus on trying to find the best investments you can and find good investments that are going to do well for you over a long period of time. And that's probably the better hedge than trying to get exotic. It even says on their prospectus that this is something that is only for sophisticated investors was kind of how they put it. So when they start using words like that, I think that I'm out. (laughs) That's a pretty good philosophy, I think. We will go ahead and wrap up our conversation for this evening. wanted to thank everybody for taking the time to send us those fantastic questions. Those are awesome. And you sending us some great stuff. So these are very interesting topics for us to discuss. And hopefully you guys are getting some good information from all of this. So without any further ado, I will go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety. Emphasis on the safety. Have a great week and we'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.